0: Hi and welcome to the Directors UK podcast. 1917 is on a roll this awards season, with wins for Best Director and Best Picture at the Golden Globes, and a bucket full of nominations at the BAFTAs and the Academy Awards. For our first screening of 2020, we hosted a QA and a with the film's director, Sam Mendes, and who better to talk to him about this stunning technical achievement than the amazing Alfonso Cuaron. In this episode, Sam and Alfonso discuss the amount of preparation that was required for such long takes, the continued relevance of the First World War, and why you shouldn't be sat there wondering where the cuts are. Just a heads up, there are a few spoilers for the film in this discussion. We hope you enjoy the podcast.
1: Thank you. (laughs) Maestro. Good evening uh welcome i think uh, I'm sure that uh, you just finished uh, an amazing experience, so now we're going to chat with Sam just to start getting into backgrounds
0: is this film has this film been gestating for a long period well, in one sense yes in, in another sense no uh, um, no in the sense that i didn't think I was ever going to write anything um, It was never my intention to write a script uh and it was only when I'd done the last two bond movies and I'd spent this time in the writers' room uh working on projects from the ground up, you know from a blank page, I'd never actually sat in the room with writers and no story I'd always been sent a script or um, developed a book or you know, but to be in a room where there was nothing and to watch it become something on that scale that was quite inspiring and i and i began to think, <laughs> maybe I could do it myself, began to think of myself as a writer. Um, so it wasn't until then I actually thought I could write anything. But in another sense, it's been gestating all my life because it's based on mm. stories that my grandfather told me. And he, he did a funny thing when I was about 12. My, my grandfather, I should give you some background, he was a, he was a novelist um, and uh, a great storyteller and a hero of mine when I was growing up. Um, and, uh, but he, he fought in the war from 1916 to 1918. You can see that the, the movie is dedicated to him. Um, but he never told us the stories, uh, never told anyone the stories uh, of what he'd been through in the war until I was uh, 11 or 12 and we pestered him and he, he told us. Um, but he, he forced me when I was 12 to sign a contract. He, he wrote a little contract out, longhand, that I would complete my first novel by the age of 18. Um, which obviously I didn't do, um, uh, but, uh, but, but, <laughs> but, but he was obviously determined that I would be some form of a storyteller. He, he, he knew that I was interested in stories, and he knew that I kept asking him to tell, him st- to, to tell me stories. So in a way, this is, this is me fulfilling my contract um, <laughs> uh, that he, he, he made me sign when I was 12. So, um, so in that respect, it's been it's well, been just. You the interest. I have
1: to say <laughs> of all the of all the time that you lapsed. Um, no, but it, something is is I think is, is relevant as in is interesting is that if you think about it, now the, this war happened more than a hundred years ago, and I'm thinking of me as a, a as as, a, as as a teenager, for instance, uh, and thinking think, thinking about wars that happened hundred years before and i have to say i have to think about the italian restoration uh uh the leopard long you, time, you know yeah. the stuff is, is mm-hmm. it looks like and i have to say it was like not a period that i was never uh, i was necessarily fascinating the, the the end of the of the, of the 19th century mm-hmm. uh it's clear that this war has a greater resonance mm. And, and particularly in the UK, you know, it was uh, it, it was it, I think it marked in many ways mm. uh, the, 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 the nation that then it was it, it was it was created afterwards. So it, it was a war that when you were growing up, besides the stories of your of your of your grandfather, it was something was relevant that you were
0: intrigued about? Yeah, I think we brought up, I mean, most of the people in this room I'm sure would would concur if they'd been brought up in the English education system. This war throws a huge shadow over the, uh, a much bigger shadow in some ways than the Second World War. You know, we we all have our term of doing the war poets, Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon, um, learning about the war, you go into any village or small town in the UK, and there's a memorial to the fall and, and one of the things that you notice about these memorials is that often, in, you know, these are small villages. Entire families, you'll see, you know, seven genera- you know, seven names. That's three generations of men, or two generations, of the, the male line completely wiped out. So uh, the sense of a generation dying is very um, is very clear. But the thing that fascinated me about it and still does, um, it's endlessly fascinating, is it? It, in some ways the Second World War is much easier to get your head around. Um, there is a clear
1: baddie, baddie
0: you know. Yeah. There's a clear sense of, well, it's the Nazis, and you know. Um, and, and here, this sense of humanity in a kind of cataclysm, the, se- the First World War, this sense of the innocence of both sides. Um, and the, the sense in which they're pawns of a, of a higher power of history the mechanics of history moving people against their will the sense of boundaries being blurred of of the the boundaries of Europe being redrawn of the the, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire um, and and how that the winds that were blowing then in Europe are blowing again a little bit now that was something that mm. did that did begin to Pull at me a little bit. Uh, You know, we are also in. I think in in the in the time of a collapse of another great empire, which is the American Empire, and and I do think we are all obsessed now with boundaries and and borders and immigration, and we are um, now witnessing a refragmenting of Europe. Of Europe, yeah. And and that is that's now. I didn't make the movie because of that. I I, I, that was not what the movie is about. It's about the human experience of war. But if there was ever a time when a hundred years seems like a very short time away. It's now. And uh, and there's another thing, which is that, you know, every person who fought in the First World War has now died. Almost, and this shocked me, almost every person who fought in the Second World War is now died. We take as read that we grew up with people who fought in these wars, but they are gone. I mean, the, the people who remain who fought in World War II in their 90s, I met a a veteran uh, the uh, the uh, the premiere of the movie in LA a um, uh, second world war veteran is 101 years old you know and he, he 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 went to wars in his early 20s but that that's the generation now and they they're going and and you do feel that that it's slipping that that sense of collective memory of these historical events that shaped the world that we grew up in that is going now and that world is changing and so it's quite shocking when you realize that it's quite a it's quite a a cold shower. You know, you you look around, and you think actually no one has any living memory of these wars anymore. Well, you, you, if you think about it, um,
1: the we have way. I'm talking we us and a lot of people in this room. We have more in common with the childhood of our great parents and great grandparents than with the childhood of our children. You know, in in many ways uh, we we share a consciousness about a. a, a a past that is still present in us, and uh, that for our children is is completely is like thinking about Garibaldi and and Absolutely. and, the, and
0: the, the Italian. Because hearing it from the people who were there is different, and you know. But I also feel like, you know, I say it right at the end, of the the, the um, dedication to my grandfather says, you know, who told us the stories, and that that's very deliberate phrasing. You know, he told us stories, and and um, you know, uh, we. I hope, Schofield at the end of the movie, I feel lives on to tell the stories uh, to his children and grandchildren, and, and we live on to tell the stories that they told us, you know, and that, that as a duty as a storyteller is to hand down. In a way, that's how stories and storytelling, the tradition of storytelling emerged in the first place, you know, that sense of it being a gift um, in some way. So I, I did feel that, that quite keenly, and, and that thread that I felt writing it has become bigger and bigger while releasing it. Because every time I come to a screening, every time we do queue and every time the people that come up to me afterwards, all of them have personal, you know, relationships with them. my father, my grandfather was in the second world. War, my great grandfather was, and they never spoke about it. Or they did this, or they did something that was similar in the, to, to the story in the movie. And, and the, the sense of pride and, and, and that sense of, you know i had i had nowhere else to put these stories and now you give me someone I, I can put it i can give it a context mm-hmm. that's really lovely and and that feeling that there is a there is still these people who are looking for somewhere to put those stories um and and you know I, I i'm getting pitched an awful lot of other war movies suddenly you know which i've never would have been before by people who want their their you know relative stories told which is understandable i don't think i'm going to do them right but you know it's you can feel the sense of um need that that, that that these things if we don't mark them are going to be lost forever
1: the um now but growing up i mean the the, the the there are quite a few amazing masterpieces uh films that are uh based in the in in during this war i mean if you you go back <coughs> to the to the to the silent era and then you go man you go from all quiet to uh uh, and you have Lubitsch, uh, and, and it's, it's interesting because Grand Illusion. Uh, that's a Renoir, yeah, Grand Illusion, but What is what I was going to say. There are different approaches, you know, the, the, those, some are more oblique approaches, some are more direct appro- approaches. Mm-hmm. You have uh, even Lubitsch with Broken Lullaby that is kind of after the fact. Everything happens after the fact. and uh, And, of course, Paths of Glory. Were you ever interested? Those were films that you were kind of attracted, or, or kind of influenced in any way, or not really?
0: I, I was parts of Glory. I was influenced by because clearly, it, it, you know, he he, the shots walking down the trenches are iconic, and and and, um, you know, you always think about Kubrick at some point in making a film, at least in my experience. Um, he surfaces, you know. Um, like a sort of dark you know elf in your brain going, you know yes you wouldn't I'd do it better than that you know <laughs> that's what he seems to say, yeah. and generally he has so that's probably true but um but i couldn't f uh, every every time i got to um uh Story about the First World War. It was about the insanity of sending the men to war in the first place. It was about the generals. It was about the the mechanics of it. It wasn't about the human experience. And what struck me, and when I thought about it, and when I heard these first person accounts, especially from my granddad, is that it's, it's such a present tense war. It was a very unusual time in history where you have the beginning of industrial warfare. You have, you know, beginnings of uh, mechanized conflict tanks and machine guns and you could kill a man at a thousand yards but you couldn't communicate with that man over 20 yards and that never happened again in history mm. and to me to put two men what I felt I'd never seen was was being in that absolute present tense I only can see what the men see and nothing more and, and I would need to remain on the ground with them or in many cases under the ground in trenches and, and, and dugouts and holes and Tunnels and what have you, and it felt like I hadn't been to that place, um, and I hadn't had that sense of real time and real distance. But then I had to find a way, a, a moment in the war where where you could travel distance because it's a war of paralysis, the First World War, it's a war of stasis. Mm-hmm. You're trapped in trenches, you can't move. That's the whole point of it, you know. Millions of men lost their lives in 300 yards of land, you know, piles upon piles of bodies, you know. Um, and and there was no movement. So I had to f- work very hard when I was thinking about it because I had in my mind that I had, we had to carry a message to find a moment in the war where it was possible for someone to travel a distance. And there is this moment in 1917 when the Germans retreat to the Hindenburg Line and overnight the British are cut adrift in this land that they fought over for years and suddenly has been abandoned. And none of them in that 72-hour period know have they, have they uh, surrendered, have they retreated, have they withdrawn, is it a trap, is it not a trap? So there's that sense of, of you know, you can get that, that perfect storm of having a Colin Firth saying, it's okay, they've all gone. And then an Andrew Scott 200 yards later saying, no, they haven't, don't be ridiculous. And we were out there two days ago and not, we lost three men. Um, and for us not to know who's telling the truth and for the men not to know who's telling the truth. So that was a very important moment to find that moment in the war when it unlocked the possibility of telling a different kind of story about this conflict. So that was the moment that I thought, okay, I think there's a a film here. But it it took me about three months of research to find... I mean, I should have known that moment, but I I wanted to... I had all these first-person accounts, but I couldn't find a way to somehow make it one organic whole.
1: And in which part of this process was your decision of doing this in real time?
0: That was always there. I, I don't Always
1: was the point of departure. Of
0: the yeah, wind. I I, I've for some reason had this, this, I was clinging on, and at, at times I thought maybe that's stupid, maybe I should tell a different kind of story, but I was clinging on to this idea that my grandfather was given the job of carrying messages into No Man's Land. He was very small, and he, 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 one of the reasons they gave him the job was because the mist in No Man's Land hung at six foot, and he was five foot four, and so no one could see him over the top of the mist, which hung permanently in the winter. Um, and that image of him, this tiny man surrounded by death, that was the that was it. I, I just that's all I knew. I just had that one idea, and I wanted him to keep going. I wanted my grandfather to keep going. I wanted him to succeed. That was my I suppose emotional connection with it. And of course, you know, so so that's and I thought this has to be real time. He, I want to follow him on his journey to carry his message. And the moment I decided it was real time, pretty much the next thought was and there should be no cuts. Not, it should be one shot, mm-hmm. but there should be no cuts. Yes, exactly. to, uh, that's different, it's a different mm-hmm. thought process. I don't want to let an audience out. Not, I want it to be a technical feat and achievement, but I don't want to let anyone escape. Mm-hmm. They have to experience every step, every second with these men as the time passes. They have to feel the distance they're traveling, feel the physical difficulty of the journey, and unconsciously begin to realize there's no way out. You have to go with them, or, 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 you know, and if they succeed, you're gonna succeed with them, and if they're gonna fail, you're gonna fail with them. But one way or another, you're gonna go on this journey. And that that should be a gradual realization. You know? And of course, in the way that we release films now, there's a narrative always attached to it, and the narrative is always one shot, and it's a technical this, and this, and that. But you know, I hope, even if you go in knowing that, that after 10 minutes, you forget about it, and that you watch only the story and only the men and that if you've gone in thinking, I wonder where the cuts are. I wonder where they, you know, that you just—that's the last thing you think. After 50 minutes, you're like, "Shit! I hope they get across No Man's Land, or I hope they get out of these tunnels that are collapsing." You're not thinking where the cuts are. You're thinking, "Are they going to survive?" And because we've cast two young men who don't have that knowledge of, "Oh, it's it's Leo. He's probably going to make it." Right? <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you don't know they're going to make it. And sure enough, one of them doesn't make it. And perhaps he's not the one you expect to not make it. That's something that we were, we were, we were. I was encouraging an audience to feel like, to to to, to not have the certainty of knowing uh, that that this was going to work and that they were going to succeed. So I wanted to to feel that, to be able to pull the rug out, you know, um, when 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 necessary, and even when there's only one of them left, to, to even then not know whether he's going to make it. And in some ways, he doesn't, by the way.
1: Yeah. The um. So. Now that you're talking about this real time, because we start talking about that outside, um, there's a transition. You know,
0: uh, uh, you, yeah, you, there is you, a cut. Exactly. <laughs>
1: no, no, I I don't want to talk about cuts at, at this mm-hmm. point. It, it, for me, it's more. It's, there's uh, in terms of the narrative of the of the film, there's a uh, there's a time transition following the real time, and you go into that tra-
0: time transition. Why? Well, when I got to it, I thought he's given a... No general would give you two hours to get there because that's a long just g- distance to travel. So it's, it's between when Colin Firth, General Aaron Moore, says you have to get there by dawn tomorrow. So I thought the shape of the movie I wanted was from dusk to night, or dusk to evening, and then from night until dawn. Mm. So some, something had to happen in the middle. <laughs> and that's just purely the mechanics of how I was thinking. Okay, there has to probably be a break. How can I make best use of that break? And how can I stretch it to the point where you feel like maybe he's gone? Maybe, maybe that is the end. you know, Maybe it's not. So I wanted that disorientation. But I also wanted to mark a shift in the film from the moment it shifts from naturalism, or poetic mm-hmm. naturalism, compressed mm-hmm. naturalism, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. to something more mythic, to, to, if it's, that's not pretentious. Mm-hmm. Uh, because for me, when he wakes up, it's a different film. Uh, in a way, he, he's, he's, it's a kind of descent into hell. And, and and what he experiences in the burning town and and the journey down the river and is a kind of um, fight to come back into the land of the living again. And when he crawls up that bank into the woods where the soldier is singing, that's when he re-enters the land of the, land of the living. Now, I, I, so I wanted it to feel like a complete tonal shift so there was a deliberate choice not to, when we came back from black, to come back to the same shot again, but to come back to a different angle. Yeah. yeah. So it's, And he's upside down in that moment, that he's in close up and in that moment you think, he doesn't know where he is, he doesn't know how long he's been out for, he might have been out for two days, he might have missed his deadline entirely. You don't even know if he himself remembers who he is or where he's supposed to go. And he just stumbles forward into that landscape, blindly. Uh, and I love the fact that you, the audience, don't know what the time is. I mean, the first thing he does, very obviously, is tap his watch. You know, li- no, I don't know what. You know, he's we're, we're out of time here. We're in some other place. So there was a there was a tonal shift as well. And and the more I thought about it, and the more Roger Deakins and I talked about it, the better it seemed as an idea uh, to take him down into this into the underworld, really, um, in which he, he 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 you know he meets versions all, almost of himself. You know, the the two soldiers he meets are like mirror images. You know, when he looks at the burning church and that man comes out of the burning church next to him, it's like he's looking at his own shadow. And they walk towards each other, and it's only the shape of his helmet, or, you know, the shape of uh, whatever it is that alerts one to the other about, oh, that's, no, he's not my friend, it's an enemy. In, in that moment, it shifts. It's like a bad dream, a nightmare you've had. Or again, when he stumbles into that, bombed out schoolhouse and, and is staring in the face of someone who's clearly younger and more frightened even than he is you know and, and has to gives him the opportunity to go but they end up fighting and he, he has to kill him so those those moments are deliberately dreamlike and, and strange and and um, kind of defy the sort of naturalism that had been the sort of progressive almost join the dots naturalism that takes him up to that point
1: no and, and it's a uh, you know and, and, and Deacon's work and he has done amazing work all of his life and the the scene of the, uh, the <coughs> night with the flares i mean it's, it's just it's is amazing It's incredible is i mean i i remember only of his work uh, the train scene in assassination of Jesse yeah, james, Jesse james yeah. you know that train yeah, that yeah, train absolutely. that train moment it's uh, you know this thing of the, the it, it gives you that, that sense of, of, of confusion, of a hell. He's, he's, he's
0: in the midst of hell. It's really incredible. That it, it is, and it, it was a very, it was, it was, it was actually a very, um, I mean, all of these things were complex to construct. Obviously, you're constructing a set.
1: That's the, the, the core idea of the flares was from the get-go, both. or, or he, so he came up with the idea no, of the, the flares? No, the flares were in the script. We, we had this, but okay. the flares
0: became more expressive and, and more of a metaphor <laughs> as we worked on them, more of a state of mind. Um, and uh, we, we constructed the set uh, you know, in miniature models. And we built uh, little wires. And we, we, we turned off all the lights in the room. And we, we worked out the journeys of each flare and how long for. And w- we constructed the town to throw the correct shadows. Mm-hmm. So that entire town, in a way, is a lighting rig. The, the, the town is constructed in order to throw the shadows into the right places. Mm-hmm. And the Burning Church, which is actually a rig of about 2,000 two lights. Which then becomes a, a visual effect, um, you know we, we we plonked it in the middle and then we ripped bits off all the walls of the model so that the light streaked through in the right way um, to 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 light to, to to light Schofield's journey as he went through that town and even on the day we, we went there you know banging bits of wall out and to try to get the light streaking through at the right moment for him to turn around or look and so everything in a way was. Um, was 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 built from the light outwards. Which, yeah, but, which but that unusual. that is
1: interesting because you prep everything at night time. I'm sure because I mean th- that you really need to you you need to rehearse it or try it at night. But that was the
0: thing about the movie is that you know one of the things that was interesting is if I tried to shoot that sequence of him walking through the town with the flares going down Main Street you know, into the main square and down into the cellar in a conventional way, by which I mean coverage, and it would have taken twice as long. Um, but we would have all been relaxed, you know, because we were like, oh, we got three shots tonight, oh, we yeah, got eight yeah. shots, we got yeah. seven setups, we're doing this, we're like, oh, I don't know, keep moving, keep working. And uh, this, it took, much, it was much quicker, but we had to spend an entire day and night just rehearsing, and everyone, terrified, panicked, we're not shooting anything, we're not gonna, it's like, it's okay, because when we do shoot it, we get the whole thing. So it it was this constant thing of like, everyone slight, that slight sense of panic, that if we don't get something, it means we're not doing it, and trying to persuade them, the crew that actually, and they got used to it eventually, actually it doesn't mean we're not doing it, because, you know, when we've rehearsed it properly, we'll rip through it, you know, and we'll get seven minutes like that, you know. But it'll take two days of preparation to get that, and uh, or three days, and that's on top of the rehearsals and the you know the blocking and all that sort of stuff. You know, we the, the um, it, we had to time each individual flare. I remember thirty-two seconds, twenty-two seconds, seventeen seconds. You know, and which way they were going and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I mean R- Roger is meticulous and Roger is all about prep, and and we did it properly. I mean, we prepped this movie properly. We prepped it with the actors. Now, to have the luxury of the actors there from day one of prep. So we had six months, and every time I needed them, they were there. So by the time we came to shoot, it was in their bodies. It was in George's. It was every fiber of his being. And he not only understood his own character's journey through the movie, but he understood exactly what every other department was doing. He knew how long the flares were going. He knew how long... He knew where the explosions were in the last run. He knew exactly what, and he'd heard. I, I told him, "You've got to come to every meeting, come to every production meeting, and just listen to what we're talking about, so you understand what you're part of." And I was very lucky because I had a, two actors, and particularly George, who was interested and wanted to be part of it and wanted to hear those things, and so it, it made the whole experience much more coherent. And and you must have found this. I mean, you know, we, we I was saying to you outside, you know, um, one of the the Many m- wonderful moments in your movies that Roger and I actually studied was a shot in *Children of Men*. You know, but one of the things I find with these big shots is that you do get in the way that you fragment a normal day's work on on set. You know, you say you've got a close up, the hair and makeup department are interested, and the special effects are you know reading the newspaper, right? And you have got a big explosion. You know, hair and makeup are not so interested. You know, but on this movie and one of the big shots. Everyone is interested in every second of every shot. And that's never happened to me before. So the entire crew is sort of, you know, like poised like this for every moment. And that was really exhilarating. And plus the fact that we were all together for so long made it a kind of utopia for a director. You know, I'd never had that experience where everyone was just in it the whole time, completely uh, completely sharing and, uh, you know, it's a circle. And no one really was the first point in that circle. Sometimes it was the camera, sometimes it was the actor, sometimes it was the light, sometimes the, the landscape and the set, uh, sometimes the script, you know, and, um, but everyone uh, was, was, a, was unified in it. And that was, a, that was one of the reasons why, for me, it's been the most wonderful experience.
1: The um, uh, I mean, it's inevitable. We need to talk about the continuous shot. <laughs> you know, uh, the, the, and also, I think there are a lot of directors in this... In, in, in this, <coughs> this well, room I hope and so. Directors and, UK. And you know, directors are a bunch of geeks. Otherwise, you're, you're interlopers. What are you doing yeah. here? And, you know, directors, they have this geek thing, so <laughs> they want to know a little bit about <laughs> things. Um, I mean, I'm sure that a lot of that is a combination of preparation, mostly. Yeah. And then every day. Uh, clearly, for instance, I, I, I'm, I'm very curious about the way in which the trenches were designed. That, that is, they were designed <laughs> so you could in in the in the smallest space possible to maximize yeah. the journey, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, did they make sense? Or uh, they and did make sense. I mean, it, visually in in, in yeah. film-wise, they make perfect sense. No, but, but but, but geographically, make sense. Make sense? They yeah, make
0: did, sense. Did they make sense in reality? I, 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 Absolutely, that's a good question. Um, by the way, the trenches with that we went to, the Roger and I went to in Belgium, particularly, uh, did not make any sense at all. I mean, uh, it, it was they were so random, mm-hmm. like a beehive, that you got lost in them within three minutes. You didn't know which way you were facing. The only way you could judge it is with the light, and if the light wasn't out, you didn't know where you were. So that was one of the things that I was really struck by. But, you know, the formal design of the trenches, which were, you know, mostly crenellated or zigzags, and then they were linked by comms trenches, communication trenches, which went either up or down. And there were three lines and then the rear. So there were four lines of trenches linked by comms trenches. We, we had adhered to that, basically. They were crenellated or zigzagged, the trenches, because if a German had fallen into one, I mean, come in, made it all the way to the... Uh, to the British lines, they jumped in with a machine gun. If the trench was straight, they could just mow down a thousand people. So they had to build them, you know, with with kinks in them. So there were reasons for it. Um, the if you imagine we were in a field um, with scripts uh, six months before shooting, and just an empty field, and we we walked the journey, and we said, okay, this is where he turns left. We planted a. Uh, exactly, right I was going to be my question. And you then this but is you where you did
1: it with actors, or yes, with actors.
0: With actors, yeah. yeah okay. and, and 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 I did it with. I, I had other younger actors who were playing roles in the movie uh, stand in for Colin Firth, Andrew Scott. I rehearsed everything, and and I I staged every scene, uh, every inter- interior, so the dugouts or the smaller trenches on stages at Shepperton with cardboard box piles of cardboard boxes that I could move. Very quickly to make the walls of the trenches. Uh, so if I and I was always looking to compress it into the smallest possible space, um, and then we would. So the long journeys we would we would mark out on field, and then the small journeys we would do inside, uh, and then eventually Andrew Scott, Colin Firth, etc. Came in, and then I said, okay, this is where your bed is, and then we changed it a little bit again, and you know eventually then I would give it to the production design and say, okay, that's it but only after they'd come into the room in Shepperton and I'd played the scene for them, like, like a play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that for me is familiar, that rehearsal, that sense of rehearsing to perform. Yeah, yeah,
1: but the, but the difference here is that you're playing really with the space because you have to design, you said that the, 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 in, in the first war they, were, they had reasons, well yes, but they didn't have the little obstacle that dramatically in that moment, they turn left and they enter this place. And they are coming all the way from the tree, yeah. You know, so how is it going to connect one thing? How how long is it going to take uh, to first of all enter the trenches? Once that you walk, walk uh, you go into the trenches. What is going to be the distance yeah. for the moment in which you know t- turns to one side and then eventually goes into yeah. in, into into the room inside? That's
0: so. uh, that's instinct. That that that's you know that comes from the theater uh, judging for me judging the rhythm and tempo of a scene without cutting, the most difficult things in the movie for me were the silences. Uh, Talking and walking is not too difficult. You know, okay, walk a bit faster. You're talking, you're arguing. Then you have to go through a crowd of people. Then you've got a little bit more. Then you turn right. That's not quite so difficult. What was difficult for me at the beginning, I remember this really clearly, first shot of the movie was the most difficult because I wanted him to read a letter. And the actor's instinct is to, I don't want to make the audience wait for me to read this fucking letter, right? I, I, I've got to do it quickly, right? Just because I don't want people, I'm like, no, read the letter and walk and just keep reading it until it's finished. Turn it over, read the rest of it oh. and then fold it up, put it in your pocket and say, this is what I just read. To have the balls to do that, that was, uh, was hard. It was hard to persuade myself that at this point, um, an audience would accept just walking and just allowing that information to seep in gradually as we pull back, another person, another person, gradually the army grows, the tents grow, you see the mess tents, you see people having haircuts, you see people loading ammunitions, and then gradually, in layers, you get this, this picture, and then you start to descend that slope. And again, we had long discussions about how, how steep the slope should be, mm-hmm. how, how slowly you should go to the point where the horizon disappears, the point where the tree disappears, and then we we introduce a little bridge over the top of the trench, which starts to cut out the light and diminish, and get that sense that being pushed underground. And that that shot was hard work, you know, because you you Not were only that because on top of that, you change different
1: rigs during the shot.
0: In that shot, no, we were on a we were on a stable the stable. We had five or six key rigs plus you know drones and and stuff like that no, but, but in that shot you did, you don't have a transition Once that they are walking in we don't we 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 have a there is a transition within the shot, but we stay on the same rig i ah, the same rig okay yeah. okay so okay. it's a it's a little thing called a stabilize eye yeah, so yeah yeah. M- most of it you know was shot on most of the trench work was shot on a on a on a stabilized rig held by two grips or one grip in certain small cases but operated on wheels by roger remotely remotely yeah so it was not well it was
1: called a movie before no? huh it was called yeah, mini- yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah
0: and they call it a stabilizer i think ari calls it a stable eye. and there's another little tiny uh, it's called a dragonfly yeah, yeah. To, you know tiny little um, uh uh, uh, uh steady cam rig um but you know th- there was i used to call them there's a there was a ninja rig a, a samurai rig and a sumo rig right so the ninja was the small st- yeah but zone. i have to say that the, 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 the was the was the trinity which is the
1: the, big the, thing. the 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 uh the grips the the, the groups operating they are amazing because not only about moving back, actually the cranes and the the booms up and down at the beginning yes are they feel almost and yes it's a stabilizing thing but it's is the tempo of everything is really, really, really small. Yeah,
0: I think that's, but, but that was the key. I mean, you would understand this, is that the, it's, it's the moving between rigs without shifting the style of the camera. And I think that's, you know, it's yeah. fine, you know, you can't grab it off the crane and then run with it. It's gonna look like you're gonna go from a nice smooth, you know, crane shot to a hand, a wobbly handheld shot. It, it, it's, the, it's the tempo of everything. And it's the sense that there is this constant, this constant threat that, 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 that the camera can express things in the way that it moves that are beyond words. And that's something that, that I think one has to believe as a filmmaker, um, and that we are we're very sloppy with the way the camera moves now, and, th- and that Steadicam has encouraged some exciting experiments and some very bad cinematography as well, you know? And that, um, in the same way that, for me, making a movie in this way, challenges the way that I've made movies before and makes me realize how sloppily and, in, and how ill-considered a lot of the time my editorial decisions are. That, you know, oh yeah, well, w- I wanna see every line in this scene, so I'm gonna go cut, 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 you know what I mean? And that, that you do that almost without thinking. And, that, 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 uh, and I was shocked at, at how much my um, early instincts as a filmmaker with American Beauty had got watered down um, by making, you know, just, what I felt were pretty straightforward editorial decisions, and how much you can still use the grammar of film, the big wide shots and the tight shots without cutting, um, uh, if you think about it hard enough and if you set yourself that challenge, um, but it's also very helpful to have written it, you know so you you can step back and rewrite if you find yourself getting into a situation where you need to cut. I suppose I had a rule in the movie for me, which is if I ever get to the moment when I think this scene would be better if we cut the scene is wrong and I have to go back uh, if necessary as far back as the script and rewrite mm-hmm. um, and uh, and and make sure I don't have that on the day of shooting and so we'd had a couple of moments like that in rehearsals and I was able to rewrite it
1: and the uh, an, an extra element just to add the complication and all of this thing you were talking about the journey say from the early early on on the tree the letter and stuff going through the camp and going into the <laughs> trenches and and uh, how, however, many transitions or not, there the, the would be that, that I think is com- completely relevant. Uh, is, and I'm sure Royer was, like a rottweiler with it, the direction in which the trenches are oh, yes. are built, yes. and where, in <laughs> which point, the trench has to turn into a different angle, uh, because of the camera moving, uh, adjusting. And then they, I'm sure that the geography starts changing in the in, in in the trenches, right? Only another right?
0: director would, or a, or another director of photography would, would would ask that question. Yes, we we you absolutely right. We be, we had to build three sections of trenches, all mm-hmm. pointing in the correct direction for the light, um, because otherwise we you know the the, uh, the we'd be stiff by that. I mean, also if you get trapped in a trench and the light is right ahead of you, then you, there's no shot. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so yeah, we, we did a lot of that sort of fancy footwork, and we were able to, I mean, we built over a mile of trenches, but they were in three sections. Um, yeah, and and then that was part of the, 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 the challenge also was to shift the atmosphere within those trenches. So it didn't feel like they were going through the same trench constantly, you know, and the light shifting also helped us there. Um, but, you know, I was looking over, you know, hundreds of, of uh, period photographs to try and find details in trenches that weren't just, you know, Uh, trench sites and so we we constructed those railway cottages that it goes through at one point and then you know I love the idea that that uh, obviously when they get over to the German side that the German trenches are and were constructed completely differently you know using engineers and architects and um, and concrete and they you know built deep underground and they had beds I mean all those things are efficient accurate yeah I know it's a cliche but it was true Um, German efficiency so Uh, You you know, all those things were very helpful to us. Plus, when we went to Belgium, Roger and I, we saw these white trenches dug in chalk. And we both looked at each other like, oh my God, it never occurred to me that either of us that the trenches would not be brown, you know? And so you've got this other world, this other landscape of the trenches dug in chalk, and you've got the quarry, which is in clay. So there's different colors and different tones and atmospheres that, that can be used. And, and that was pivotal for us because we didn't want to get trapped in this sort of brown world, you know. Um, and that's to a large degree what, what's happened with most, you know, First World War movies because they are stuck in the trench. And then
1: from the er, from early on, I'm sure there was a, a big scary decision: is are we going to commit ourselves overcast or sunlight?
0: Yeah. Well, actually, didn't that didn't take long because okay. we we had to be overcast because. Uh. The idea of, uh, no, it, it was all about No Man's Land. No Man's Land was pivotal for us. You know, it's early on in the movie, but it's the most important and, and scariest part of it. Because in a way, I felt a responsibility to bear witness to that place. It, it, was, like, it was like trying to recreate uh, a, 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 a sort of burial ground, mm-hmm. you know? And, and it was, so many people died in that space. So many people were left to rot and buried in unmarked graves so many relatives of people that you know we know just never came back and and died in that that one place and i i wanted it to be i wanted it to be heavy and and i wanted the visibility to be not very long i wanted it to be misty so that defined the whole beginning of the film i, I couldn't contemplate a sunny no man's land. Yeah, but
1: you, 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 you got lucky with weather. I mean, at some points you used smoke to block the sun,
0: right? No, we waited. We you always waited. waited yeah. Yeah. We, never, we, never, well, uh, we never blocked anything apart from when we were in a dugout. Um, but the good news was while we were waiting, we rehearsed. And we would often rehearse, and if we got to the end of rehearsals for one shot, we'd rehearse the next and the next. And then we'd go back. And then we'd be prepared. So we very rarely sat around waiting for the sun to go in the couple of moments when we're on the river, like, uh-oh, you know, there's nothing we can rehearse. We either, geor- we have to you're throw active, George into I'm that lazy, river. i I prefer to wait. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's painful. <laughs> and Roger was dying, because he felt like people were blaming him. And I said, "This, that's all right, you know, they're blaming me, so fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you had to, yeah, I mean, it was important, because there would be no continuity, either if you're stitching two shots together. Once you start, that's it. Once you commit to that first, you know, mm-hmm. that first overcast, we had a few Lucky accidents. When he, they come out into the quarry after they've got out of the tunnels, mm-hmm. there's a kind of watery sunlight there, which was really weird and eerie, and that was very lucky. And that was a natural mist hanging over that quarry on that day. So that was just a bit of luck. Um, and then other times, there's amazing. We shot in Salisbury Plain, and the, I don't know if you know it up there, but the landscape is it, it's it's very high. It's, it's quite primeval, sort of. It's West Stonehenge, is obviously. So it's a thousand foot above sea level. Uh, but it's very flat, so you have these huge vistas of sky that disappears over the horizon, and the skies were very—it's like a microclimate. They were very changeable and and very moody all the time. So those sorts of things were just were lucky. You know, we we, we were um, we were fortunate, and you know, we were in England, so you don't have to wait long for grey grey weather.
1: No, and on, on top of that, any any, it, it is amazing what the, with the tools of visual effects we can do nowadays. Yeah. You know,
0: yeah. like. Uh, I mean, we were talking about you know. Um, I was, I was geeking out on Alfonso about his Children of Men shots, and and you saying, well, actually, that was over ten years ago now, and it was difficult to achieve those. And there's a lot that's happened. in Yeah, the because last so time. Th- in
1: those days we could not do the whole thing of the sky rep- replacements and yeah. stuff. But also, but you, now, you,
0: you, I mean, you know, the camera itself. I mean, is so small. I mean, they 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 created this prototype of the Alexa for us, that you know we wouldn't, a normal Alexa or a film camera, God knows, would not have been able to get into the spaces that we needed Mm. to get it into, literally into holes and dugouts and and trenches. It's not so much getting into the space, but but the people that are in there with you, you know, you have to get through them. You know what it's like with background passing and you don't want to see them coming in. Yeah, so they had to be tight, all the time tight. You know, with all the tightness in the
1: trenches, and I was always nervous that one one was going to to end up killing the other accidentally with the bayonet. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm sure that happened a lot, right?
0: Yeah, there was a lot of, well, we had we had some rubber bayonets, which I hated. But ultimately, <laughs> it was essential. Um, but but also, you know, I mean, I, I mourn with the rest of them, with the rest of everybody else, the death of film projection. On the other hand, if you're looking to try and do a movie with no cuts, you know, not having real changes is pretty important. Because there were at least seven or eight cuts in all of our movies, whether we wanted them or not. And it's when you change reels. And, and you know it's only recently you've been able to do something that actually is one continuous. Movement. Well, and if you have
1: uh, uh, if you have this Dolby system, you don't miss you know the, the blacks in the. This the, is incredible. This is incredible. There's only
0: two of these projectors. I, you're probably aware in London. One is in here. One's in the in Leicester Square. Uh, a cool million dollars that projector cost. Um, and uh, but it really, you really the dynamic range really is. I, I'm difference. sure you notice
1: it. The dynamic range is something incredible, yeah. and the, um, so <laughs> we talk about uh, uh, about the background, then the heavy prep because it's very clear that everything was had to be really, really, really thought out. Then how was every day, like an average day?
0: How, for for how, just, uh, how many days you shot for? We shot for sixty-five days. Wow. Um, uh, we, the average day for me normally, you so it would be coming in, uh, you know, maybe play a bit of music, you know, just in my little tent or wherever the hell I am. I, I don't like having anyone looking over my shoulder, so I was just me and my script supervisor, I don't like anyone else around. Very happy for people to come in with notes or thoughts, but they have to come into my <laughs> environment, because I get self-conscious if people look over my shoulder. Um, and this one, I couldn't listen to music, I was totally, I was in like a tunnel, um for the whole time and uh i just would sit there in silence uh staring at my mon- my monitor screen i had to have a very big monitor screen normally i don't but there was so much information in every shot and lots of background that i needed to see as much as i possibly could um and uh i um, it was a lot of it was like one long build up you know i mean you you had a daylight like, i mean every day y- y- like the trench run at the end, when George is running down the the explosions. You know, you've got three hundred crew members standing by on the monitor screen, literally, you know, cheering like a sporting event. You know, that he's going, oh, George, go on, like this. You know, it wasn't like any other move ever. Maybe that doesn't normally happen when you're shooting a shot in a movie. You know, it it had a kind of, of a feeling like a sort of there was something gladiatorial about it. Every day, we're going to make this this we're going to achieve this one thing. And that's all we needed to do. Sometimes we got it. Sometimes we didn't. But it was always a big, big build-up. It was like this sort of, you know, slow-moving beast that got bigger and bigger and more and more complex. You know, every the big trench scenes would be layers of staging. You know, okay, bring all, you know, let's get the uh, let's get the rig worked out now. Let's bring in the first round of background. Now let me stage them. Now let me do it. Let me do another layer and another layer. Now let me put George in. Now let me work out. You know. And it would just be layer upon layer upon layer. and then With you actors
1: you had already rehearsed most of the film, right?
0: Yes. But then those sequences in the trenches, it was impossible to do it without the people in the trenches with them. Because you couldn't. It, you just move differently. Like, Everyone's in the west. There's, hun- there's hundreds of people in there with you. So there was no, you know, I could say, you know, you're going to run down the trench. But I couldn't say how it was going to look or feel or how, how close people would be or how many times you would trip or fall or where the explosions would be. Um, and then, you know, Uh, it it just built and built and built until you know a take and um, and then you would have these days where you would have a six-minute take let's say you have five minutes of magic and you're like yes yes and then somebody would trip or someone would break and it would you couldn't use any of it and you had to start again and the problem there is not so much a technical problem it's a performance problem is that you have to get the actor back to that point and they're like oh that was so good you know also you've got to discourage the actor from being aware of where they are in the take, because at a certain point when they think this is, you can see them think, this is going well, this is going well, I'm gonna, this is gonna, if they start thinking that, and they start trying too hard in the last 30 seconds of the take, they make a mistake, you know? Um, and there were days like the baby, for example, when you just, you know, you can't direct a baby, you know? So the baby was amazing, you know, this four minutes of just perfect, you just it reached out for children, and then the camera operator tripped you know, no fault of his own, just not. And it was just like, oh my God, you know. And they had to start again, and the baby was yelling and crying, and then he had to have his nappy changed, and then we had to have another baby, and then, and then everyone the next day were like, oh, the old days when the, we had a great baby, you know. And the, you know what I mean? It's just like, that's what it was like. But then, so there was a sort of that feeling of this sort of gradual build of every. You yeah, know, I find day. that the, the most difficult thing
1: is, the thing I, that, that is, is very difficult is, is the thing that you're talking about performance. And it has to do with once that you do a good, complete take, the actor kind of experiences it already yeah. for the first time. And then it's very diffic- difficult to get the actors to get into that place one more time.
0: Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, Because was... then this
1: starts to be the part of improvement. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know what I mean? And then yeah. it stops. But even uh, from the standpoint of the director also, you know, as opposed to just go wrong with the wrong moment and...
0: Well, your your um, own judgment becomes faulty a little bit as well. I think that, you know, one of the great things about Lee Smith, who's the editor of this movie, who, you know, you'd think, wouldn't you, that he would probably have a pretty easy time. Um, But actually, he he was flat out all the time because he was trying to judge the takes. We had to select the takes on the day, and we had to, you know, we had to make sure that we matched to that take. Um... So, he was feeding back to me, uh, you know, and there's a great line of David Mamet, David Mamet says about editing. He says that in the, in the cutting room, the director is serving two masters, the movie and himself. It's the editor's job to just serve the movie. And that really was true of Lee in this, in this film, because Lee was saying, I know you did 28 takes, so as a director, you're pretty sure, that I take 26, 27, 28 is gonna be the best. Otherwise, what, we would, what would we be doing all that time, right? And Lee goes, I think take nine is the best, and you're like, are you are like fucking kidding me. Take nine, you know, <laughs> and then in the note it says, you know, he made he made a mistake in take nine. He's like, we can deal with the mistake. We can just we can that little moment. That's easy. Look at the performances in that take, and you know, yeah, and go and watch it on the monitor screen, and be like, fuck it, he's right, you know, and he was right almost always. He was an incredible judge of performance. I needed that because sometimes, you know, little things distract you. The take of Dean of Blake dying in this movie. That throughout that take, George had a little dot of blood on his top lip from George's blood rig, uh, from a Dean's blood blood rig. And throughout that take, I was thinking, this doesn't work. He's got blood on his face. He's got blood on his face. He doesn't know. That's not going to work. And then you know, Pippa, the producer, and Jane Ann, the producer, they all came out all sobbing. You know, that was unbelievable. No, doesn't work. You know, and it was leaves like, are you fucking kidding? That is a great take. We could take them, you know, and it's so simple, but there's little things bug you. You're, you're being perfectionist and you want everything to be right, and of course visual effects can paint it out. And I knew that, but I didn't I didn't want that to be the case. <laughs> I just wanted it to be right. So, you know, those little things that are in you, you that's where you need your collaborators to say, get out of your head, you know, and, and look at what's actually there. Look at the performances, look at the reality of the performances, there's something special there. Don't turn away from it. You know, but I, I tell you that the other thing that was wonderful about it was, I tell you a funny story about, so there's a scene shortly after Blake dies, uh, Mark Strong's character turns up and, 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 you know, sort of as, in a way, one of the most, one of the two or three only good people that he meets and helps him, and there's a, little, there's a scene with the Colonel who's sitting in the car, um, and that's played by an actor called Bill McCabe, and he's, you know, I said, listen, Bill, you could just—he's a wonderful actor. He Won an Olivier Award for playing Harold Wilson in the in, in the audience, um, played by Peter Morgan. And, uh, but you know, I've known him for years, and I said, listen, you know, just come, sit in a car. You know, I did this for a lot of actors try to persuade them to be in the movie. Just come for two days. You know, here's the script. This is what we're trying to do. And they did it, which was very moving for me. And um, anyway, his experience of that scene—he was surrounded by about 200 soldiers, trucks everywhere, out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, his experience would have been about three minutes before he speaks, we're way in the background. Action, like that, and then nothing. And there's an AD in the back seat of the car, who after about two and a half minutes goes, now. <laughs> OK, then Mark comes out, he does his scene, you know? Well, you do a few lines, and Mark and George walk off, another three minutes, and cut, like that, right? <laughs> That's his experience. After about five takes, I get this sort of forlorn voice, Sam, like this, and I go, come out from my fucking tent, which is miles away, of course, because, you know, I can't be seen over the crest of a hill, <laughs> like that, yeah? He said, where's the camera? And I was like, oh, it's, it's over there, like this. He's like, oh, okay, and that was it, and at the end of the day, he did another five takes, or 20 takes, whatever it was, he said, well, that was one of the strangest, but most enjoyable days I've ever spent <laughs> on it. He said it was like being part of a historic reconstruction. He said, I, I literally had, I never saw the camera, I never saw, the only member of the crew I saw was AD who was sitting in the back of the car, <laughs> but everybody I saw and everything I saw was real. You know, to, to all intents and purposes, it felt like I just landed in the middle of the First World War. <laughs> 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 and that gave me real satisfaction, <laughs> I don't know why, because it just felt like, yeah, that's how it should be, you know. Um, so it was, that was good. Well, Thank you very
1: much, Sam. Thank, thank you, you everybody. Good. Thank you,
0: Alfonso, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.